Today's sermon text is Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word. Thank you, Karen. We are in a current series right now called Putting on Christ. And um, on the surface, we're talking about change. We're talking about change. We're talking about being emerging as different kinds of people. People who are free from the enslavements and the struggles that every one of us have in our life. Your struggle may be different from mine, but we all All of us can look at our hearts and see things in our lives that we don't like. Now, that's the surface. Underneath that is something more important. Uh, There's a part of the book of Galatians in Galatians chapter 4 where Paul, speaking to believing people, people who have come to know Jesus, he says to them, he says these words, until Christ is formed in you. Until Christ is formed in you. That's not an evangelistic statement that he makes. This is, he's not talking to non-believing people who have not yet come to know Jesus. He's talking to people who have come to know Jesus, and yet there is a gulf between what's happened in their spirit and what's going on in their bodies, in their actions. Their hearts don't yet match up with their behavior. And so what they need is for Christ to possess them and subdue their brokenness in their lives in such a way that the way that they think, the way that they process this life is the same way that Jesus thinks, the same way Jesus processes this life, the same way Jesus feels. We can experience that kind of profound and deep change. But I want to remind you, as we said a few weeks ago, this is hard. And we live in a church culture that wants to portray to us that growing in Jesus is synonymous with three points, fancy church services, and some good promotional material, maybe an interesting Twitter feed or a Facebook Facebook feed. And I'm telling you, my friends, that while those things are nice and fine, that is not what it takes to bring about change in our lives. As followers of Jesus, we are all called to look at our hearts, to turn to Jesus and to follow him, to pick up our crosses and to follow him. And that's not easy. It's not easy. It's hard. Um, That's a terrible hook for a sermon, huh? (laughs) Man, tell me more, Chris. Um, Man, this, this series has been building. I want to commend my friend Ron Surgeon for the last two weeks of preaching and teaching at our church. Uh, he didn't preach. He taught. He made that really clear last week. But um, the last two weeks were a feast, were a feast. And man, if you missed that, please, I beg you, download those messages and listen to them. Um, every one of us are sin. Now, when I speak of sin this morning, yes, I'm talking about wrongdoing. I had a pastor friend the other day tell me, he said, you know, I just don't use the word sin anymore. And honestly, I really struggle with that. (laughs) It's all over scripture. 
It's a word that the scriptures used to talk about what is actually wrong with us. Sometimes you'll hear me and others use the word brokenness. Because I know that for a lot of us, the word sin carries connotations of maybe that hellfire and brimstone preacher that you grew up under that you didn't feel really cared about you where you were. That's not what I mean when I talk about sin. I'm talking about the thing that every one of us are born with. It is the impulse inside of us that drives us to rebel against the ways of God. That's sin. That's sin. I don't say that heartlessly. I don't say that without compassion, which is why sometimes I use the word brokenness. But we all have sin in our lives. And the fear with using the word brokenness all the time is it may train us over time to think that the darkness in my life was something that was put inside of me by people or by circumstances. And man, I just need to learn how to make peace with those things. When in reality, the brokenness in our life, while it was certainly enhanced and amplified by the stories and the circumstances and the people that have been in our lives that have hurt us, we were born with a bent away from God. That's sin. That's sin. We were born with that. It's something that's clearly taught throughout the scriptures. And so I lift that up to you, not as, a, again, a fundamentalist hellfire and brimstone preacher, but as someone who really cares about you. I care that you've got sin in your life, and I've got sin in my life. And I want to see us be transformed by the grace of God. I really want to see that in our lives. But even though that is the case, every one of us have been affected by stories. Our lives are the manifestation of a story, every one of us. And so today, as I talk about sin, I'm not just talking about those infractions that we commit against God day in and day out while those are bad. I'm not talking about that necessarily right now. I'm talking about the gripping, stubborn sin in our life that gives us a lot of shame. The stubborn sin in our life that causes us to go to God and beg God, please change me. And you've prayed that prayer so many times that it's like you can't even pray it anymore because you're sick of it not being answered. Why won't God fix this part of me? Why won't he change me? The reason why we're telling you things like change is hard is because we want to be honest with you. We want you to know what you're getting into when you get, when you get along on the project of change. It's facing yourself. It's coming to terms with the Lord and so, uh, the Lord of the universe, surrendering to him. Those are things that take a lifetime to learn. And you can see the fruit of learning to surrender to Jesus in your life right now, right now. And I want you to experience that. But every one of us, we emerge from a story. When I think about the stubborn sin that is in my life, I can trace that sin and that brokenness back to grades six and seven. For those of you who have been members here for longer than a couple of years, you've heard this before. Um, I talk a lot about myself when I'm up here. The reason I do that is not because I'm a narcissist. It's not because I really need you to know more about me. It's because I want over time to show you that it's safe to be vulnerable here. That it's safe to be known. 
I want you to be known. I know that what keeps many of you locked in that cellar, that broken, damp, dark cellar, I know what it is. It's, it's fear. It's afraid of being known, of being seen for who you really are. I've got a friend who was in therapy and he was sitting in a circle with a group of men. And the man who was the therapist who I know and respect very much walked in and he said, I'm going to tell you the secret to life. And my friend who was in a state of particular brokenness was so, he was just on the edge of his seat. And he sat there and he couldn't wait to hear what this man said. He's a great theologian, amazing uh, former pastor who's now a therapist. And he wrote it down on a piece of paper. He handed it to my friend. And then my friend, he said he watched the guys open it, read it. And as they were instructed, close it, not say anything, and then pass it around the room. It got to the end of the circle and he was sitting on the end and he opened it and he read it. And he said he was kind of let down by it. But he said in the months that followed, he was profoundly affected by these words. And he saw how these words were related and pierced every part of his being. I'm going to tell you what it said, and you're not going to get it either. Don't pretend like you will either. You're not going to get it either. Because it took me a long time to get it too. But I'm, I'm beginning to see how this is true. What was written on that piece of paper was, this is the secret to life. The most important thing you could ever know. Remember Curly on City Slickers? So I'm, I'm dating myself here. I'm, re- I'm referencing movies now, but before some of you were born. So uh, City Slickers, I remember Curly, like, there's one thing. There's one thing. There's one thing. He said, this is the secret to life. And he said, here's the secret. I like you. Do you want to be with me? If you really knew me, For all I was, would you still love me? And because every one of us are terrified by that answer, we project a poser. Someone that I think you'll like. I've done that as a pastor. I have preached sermons, good sermons, as a poser, hoping that you would love the person that I projected. And one of the things that I'm learning over the last several years is I'm going to be me. And that's terrifying at times because there's things about me I don't like. And I'm sure there's things about me you don't like either. Some of you have reminded me of that. And um, not many of you, but a few of you have. Some of my most loyal uh, members here. But um, uh, this this is something that we wrestle with deeply. And if we're going to experience change, we're going to have to find ourselves in a community of people who we know will love us no matter what's broken inside of us. And the only way you can begin to discover that is by putting yourself out there. And so I want to show you that it's okay to put yourself out there and be known. Because I've learned that if somebody doesn't like me for who I am, that's okay. That's okay. And the people who are drawn to me, despite my brokenness, they're my real allies in life. They're my real ones. It doesn't mean that I don't feel pain at times because I'm going to. Life is full of pain, full of it. And it's learning how to navigate through that in Jesus. So join me. I remember in I remember my sixth and seventh grade years, the two most toxic and profoundly painful years of my life to this day. Our church was at one time ten million dollars in debt. We were having discussions about bankruptcy 
And every single night, I could not sleep, scared, terrified out of my mind. That did not compare to the pain that I felt when I was in sixth and seventh grade. There are so many stories in my adult life that have been painful. None of them holds a candle to the profound pain that I experienced when I was in sixth and seventh grade. I experienced incredible rejection, um, um, bullying that you read about on the internet. And it had such a profound effect on me that there were habits that I picked up when I was in sixth and seventh grade. I was beginning to discover that girls were really pretty. And I had a couple of guys that I knew that gave me access to their grandfather or their dad's porn stash. And immediately I was gripped by it. And I used to find myself asking the question in my 20s and 30s, why? Why was I so gripped by this in a way that other guys weren't? And I'll never forget somebody telling me, usually the sin that is in your life that is the most stubborn is tied to your deepest pain and your deepest agony. And as I began to look, trace backwards my story all the way back to 6th and 7th grade and see the profound isolation and loneliness that I felt, it was during that time that that sin particularly and deeply grabbed me. Deeply grabbed me. I wish I could say that I don't wrestle with that anymore. I thank God for active purity in my life behavioral purity. I thank God for that. It's hard. But I'd be lying if I said that my heart, if I didn't, if I didn't keep it focused on Jesus, would just drift back into that, that sewage. It was also during that time that I became extremely and deeply insecure. And that was really below the sex addiction stuff. Below that was a deep insecurity. It was, you don't love me. You don't want to be with me. Fast forward 30 years, and I'm leading a church that's going through transition. I take over my daddy's church. Tons of people have already left. A few folks are going to leave after that too once I take over. And the story that I'm faced with every single day is, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. Which leads to me creating and amplifying the poser, the fake, the fraud, the, not, the, the antichrist the Chris that I believe that you would like and love. And the real Chris continuing to experience the toxicity of my sin and brokenness. Those were decisions that I made when I was 12 years old. I am going to hurt you before you hurt me. I am going to medicate with fantasy. I'm going to be someone that you will love, hopefully. And I look at my life today, and although I can see tremendous grace in my life, friends, my heart is still, looks like my my iPhone earbuds. You ever put those away and try to pull them out? You're like, I cannot get these things apart. You know, it drives me to make, there's nothing that makes me crazier than my iPhone earbuds all mangled up. So it takes me like 15 minutes to get those apart. I hand my wife in the car, and she's like, yeah, here you go. So that's how it feels to me. So that's a story. There's stubborn sin and brokenness in my life that every moment of every day I am fighting against that story. And it's not just, don't look at her, don't look at that, don't think about this. It's, I'm learning, it's finding 
real love. Finding my place in Jesus. And here's another problem. I was raised in the church. And so for me, Christianity was just staying out of sin and getting to heaven. And I had to come to a place as a follower of Jesus where I recognized that I am broken, I am needy, I've got nothing in my hands. And what I really need more than anything is Jesus every second of every day. Jesus could no longer be corralled to a prayer time. It wasn't a Bible study. He wasn't a Bible study anymore. He had to become my life. I have not arrived. (laughs) I have not arrived. But those are things that I profoundly and deeply believe. And these are stories that I'm tying myself to now that I rehearse in my mind when I'm facing the temptation towards fantasy, the temptation towards bitterness and anger, the temptation towards discontentment as I see other friends who are leading churches that are better than mine in every sense of the word, the sin of comparison. All those things underneath all of that, underneath all of that is insecurity and fear tied to an experience that I had when I was 12 years old and clueless as a 43-year-old person still learning how to unwind all of that. I would bet many of us, if not all of us, have some sort of story. The stubborn brokenness that's in your life is tied to your most painful story. And you have to figure that out, how that works. I can't do it for you. There's no amount of preaching that is going to show you that. You've got to go back and figure out how you are tied to your pain. And if you don't, you're not going to change. You won't. You'll be putting band-aids on cancer for the rest of your life. You'll be playing whack-a-mole with all your addictions, trying to hit that, that one and that one and that one, and then they keep on popping up. You won't, there's no way you'll win. There's no way you'll walk in a sense of victory unless you're willing to go back and see how, what created and led to your brokenness. There's no way. And I want to invite you to do that. Um, in Philippians chapter 4, and I want to invite everybody today as I go, just take a few minutes to go through this. I want to invite you to listen today with hope and perseverance. I know enough about transformation now that today's not going to fix you. Today will not fix you. Today will be another step. I had a member ask me recently. He said, okay, Chris, we're in the building. What's next? And as I've thought about that, here's my answer to that. Left foot. Right foot. And we're just going to keep walking with Jesus. We're going to walk with Jesus. No disrespect to that brother who asked me that question. But we've been trained to believe that the church needs to be disseminating, you know, just incredible experiences and things that, you know, and, and great vision for what's next down the road. And yeah, yeah there, that's, that, there's a part of that that's important, I guess. But what we need is people as followers of Jesus in America, where we don't know what contentment even smells like, we need to learn 
how to be okay with the mundane routine of putting left foot, right foot. I know that was my right foot. Left foot, right foot. Left foot, right foot. Left foot, right foot. Left foot, right foot. I know that's not sexy, but it's what we all need. It's what we all need. It's what we desperately need. It's what I need. It's what you need. I love these words in Philippians 4, 8 and 9. We just got two verses today. Doesn't mean I'll preach shorter, but we just got two verses today. Um, He leads off in chapter 4 by saying, Hey, let me uh, give you a summation of what I've said by giving you a challenge. Here's the challenge to the Philippian church. Here's the challenge. Stand firm. Stand firm. He wants them to endure and not just survive living in this broken world the Bible calls the present evil age. He wants us to stand firm in God. Stand firm in God. So he says, rejoice always. That sounds easy, right? Then he says, don't be anxious. But in every situation... Bring your request to God in prayer. Easy commands, right? Don't be anxious. See, here's the thing I'm learning. If I'm going to learn how to overcome anxiety that I've struggled with since I was a child, I've got to be known. I can't be in a relationship with you where I've got to like make you happy and please you and put on my preacher face when I come to church and make sure I shake every person's hand and remember every single name. These are things that I'm learning so that I can be a good pastor. I can't be controlled by anxiety anymore. And so when he says, don't be anxious, he's not saying, snap your fingers and stop feeling fear. But I think underneath that, he's saying to us, be proactive. Get underneath your anxiety and begin to pull apart the story that controls your anxiety in Jesus. In Jesus. And then later on, he says, God's peace will be with you wherever you go. But he tells us what to do first. He tells us what to do. And that's what we come to in Philippians 4, 8 and 9. He tells us how to be people that aren't controlled by anxiety. Anybody want to know how to not be controlled by anxiety anymore? Anybody else? Anybody feel anxiety a lot like I do? Anything from a disorder to just daily anxiety? Anybody? Raise your hand really high in the air. I want to see who my fellow fearers are, my fellow anxious people. Um, I can remember anxiety being a part of my life as far back as I can go. I remember anxiety at two years old. I don't know why it was there, but it was and it is. And he tells us how to break through this stuff. And he says, finally, brothers, in verse 8, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He says, think about these things. Think about these things. It's okay. 
true. <laughs> Thinking about true things. There is a thing as gravity. There is God. Think about something lovely. Beautiful flowers. Um, my wife. <laughs> my wife. And I'm reading this. I remember reading this and thinking to myself, how do I, how do, I do this? How do I do this? These are abstract ideas. There's got to be something that Paul means besides think about true things, I think. And I believe, I've come to believe that about Paul. One of the things I love about Paul is I started off not liking Paul very much because as a kid, I thought, man, this guy's really harsh. Didn't y'all think about, about Paul? Like he's really stoic. And then I began to read the Bible rather than just listen to Sunday school teachings. And I thought, wow, Paul is passionate. Paul is angry. When I say angry, I don't mean like raging and bitter and sinful. I mean angry like he sees a better world for people and he cannot help but to try to put them in that world and he'll do whatever it takes because he loves these people. And I see passion in Paul. I see anger in Paul. I see poetry in Paul. I love that in these books of the Bible written by Paul that he breaks out in songs. He starts singing as he's writing. We don't have the sheet music, but he was singing at times. And there were times that he gets into poetry. Paul's heart loves the arts. Loves the arts. And yet this was a man who would get up and go preach in a town where he was just stoned. So he was a man's man. This guy, this guy did not play. And I'm looking at these words here. I'm looking at these words. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, and you can hear the poetry take place, or prose, I guess you should say, you could say. You can hear his heart full of God thinking about the beautiful attributes of God's virtues. And as he thinks about the beautiful attributes of God's virtues, he begins just to let loose and describe what he sees when he thinks about and envisions God. He sees truth. He sees loveliness. He sees excellence. God is so beautiful. You can hear him saying. And so I begin to think about this. What would it look like if I thought about this in a different kind of way? What would it look like if I did that? And I began to think about um, the teachings of a guy named Dallas Willard. I don't know if you've heard of Dallas Willard, one of my favorite theologian philosophers. He's, he's, I've been reading his stuff for, since, I think, 98 when I got his first book. And there's one particular book that I got by Dallas Willard. It's called Renovation of the Heart. Um, I'm about to, or, literally, I'm about to order another copy because the highlights are so over-highlighted, there are literally sentences I can't read because you've had green highlighter, pink highlighter, purple highlighter, and I can't read the words in it, and it's really frustrating. And so I feel lots of rage when I read this book about heart transformation. So, um, so renovation of the heart, I'm reading this, and there was a model of change that Dallas Willard commends to us. And this is what he thinks. Now, this guy isn't just a heartless theologian. This is a man of huge, full heart. He was a philosophy professor at University of Southern California, a theologian. And when you hear him talk, you hear heart. I love this man. 
He's since gone on to be with the Lord. A friend told me who knows this story. He said, when Dallas Willard was laying on his deathbed, his family was gathered around. And Dallas Willard's last words, as he laid on that bed, about to give his last breath, he leans up a little bit and he looks past his family into the air and he says, thank you. And then he passed away. That is awesome. That is awesome. I love that. I want in my most volatile, broken moment for Jesus and gratitude to come out of me. I really want that. And so when we talk about change, that's what we mean. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. And so he says, he came up with this, um, with this method of change called them. 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 Would you say them with me? Them. V-I-M. And it stands for vision, intention, and means. And he believes that you're not going to experience real change unless you walk through these stages of change. Vision, intention, and means. Now here's what I mean, here's what he means by vision. That if you're going to change, you have to have a vision for change. And then he gives this example that's really good. He talks about learning a language. Now, I want you to imagine, go back to high school when you were learning a language. How many of you honestly remember your two years of language in high school? And if you can count to 10, that doesn't count. Like, you really remember it. You've got a few here who are like, really? Really? What? Spanish? You could speak Spanish right now. If I brought you on stage, you could say, okay, she really could. All right. So, John's a calculus guy, so I know he's not, they're not playing. So, um... So you, like there are, I don't remember anything. And the sad thing is, is that my mom is fluent in French. And I can count to ten. That's all I've got. That's it. Come see, come saw. I remember that one. I think that means so-so. Um, I don't know what anything else means. Now, let me tell you what my vision was for learning a language when I was in high school. There wasn't one. The only reason I was taking French was not because I wanted to take French, was because I had to take French. If I was going to escape high school, I had to take a language. And I thought maybe taking French, would, I would have a leg up with my mom knowing French. That didn't help because, my, because the second year I was taking it, she came to my school and started teaching French. And I was like, nope, I'm not doing it. So I took one year of French. And she said, but how are you going to get into college? I said, I don't care. I'm not taking another year of French. I don't care. What about your future? What, you can't get into... I'm, I don't care. I will stake my entire future on not sitting in your class and taking French from you. So I'm not doing it. I'm not doing that. She would already take it over the youth group for about a year when our other youth pastor left. I'm like, no, I can't take this. No way. So, um, so that was my vision for learning French. Now you go in other parts of the world and in other parts of the world... English is learned at phenomenal rates. Why? Jeremy says because English is awesome. Um, it is awesome. But beyond that, these people understand around the world that if they learn English, it is going to give them benefits in life that they can't say no to. 
Learning English is big. For us, learning French or learning Spanish is something we have to do. And so because we don't have a vision for learning French or Spanish, most people, we don't know how to speak French or Spanish. I think about my sweet wife, who, did I tell you she got back from Sri Lanka after being gone for two weeks? Um, (laughs) My wife knows how to speak Spanish fluently. She took four years of Spanish in high school, and she knew the science of Spanish. She could conjugate verbs and all this stuff, but she didn't know how to speak it. It was mechanical. She knew vocabulary. She knew about it. But then she went and served as a missionary in Mexico for about a year to a year and a half. And on her way back, after being immersed in the language, she was sitting in a bus station in Southern California, and she realized that as the person making the announcements over the PA system was speaking in Spanish, it hit her. I'm not having to think about this anymore. That's when she realized, I'm becoming fluent in this language. She was immersed in it. She had a vision for it in Mexico because that's how you had to communicate. Most people there didn't know English. She had a vision for it. Most people in our world don't have a vision for what is true, what is pure, what is lovely. Why? Because it makes us feel like we're in Spanish class in ninth grade. We have to because that's what Christians should do. And it is my firm belief that most people do not grow in these virtues in the church because we don't know what they really look like. We don't know what they really look like. I had a person just before service tell me, he said, yeah, I got a friend. He won't do any business for pastors anymore. He said, the reason is, is because pastors, and I said, are narcissistic. He goes, well, maybe, but the pastors are, pastors are entitled and they expect to get free stuff because they're quote, doing the work of the Lord. This is sad, but it's true. It's true. There are people that I don't even tell people what I do. My new neighbors moved in and I was like trying to find every way I could not to tell them what my job was. I was like, oh God, please don't ask me what I do with my life. Just because I want a relationship with them and I want them to see me as a normal person. It's hard living in our world because so many followers of Jesus, so many people who name the name Christian, we don't live out these virtues in our life. And I don't think it's because we're all knuckleheads and we hate God. I think it's because we don't have a vision for what it looks like to have a life of purity. For me, change really began to happen when I began to see sexual purity as more beautiful than sexual defilement. I began to grow in patience and love and empathy for others when I began to see that as more beautiful than anger and rage. But I had to have a vision for it. If I don't have a vision for that, then I'm not going to change. And so he says to us, think about, and I don't think what he means is just think about the abstract concepts of purity, truth, loveliness, uh, what is commendable, etc., etc., etc. I think what Paul wants us to do is to come up with alternative stories to the stories that we've been raised in. What does it look like to live a life that is beautiful? Speaking again very, very vulnerably here. Um, being married to my wife was a big 
was a huge impetus for me on giving her the gift of purity. I didn't want to take other women to bed with me. I wanted to give myself to her. And I wanted to know that when she was with me, that she was getting all of me and not other people. I remember what Paul's saying to the, to the Corinthians. That when you join yourself with a harlot, you also join Christ to that harlot. I remember thinking to myself, man, I don't want to do that with Jesus. I don't want to join Jesus to either physically or in my mind to other women. And I remember thinking to myself as I began to hear stories about human trafficking, about how so many of these women that look like they want me, they're so broken. And they've been objectified and exploited and slaves their their whole lives. And so all of these things were big red flags to me. But even beyond that, I began to discover what real purity, how beautiful it really is. To have a mind that is free from sexual obsession and rather have a mind where I'm thinking about God and not just abstract ideas about God. Being at a dinner and having good food and good drink and being able to lift a glass with my friends, my pastor friends like I did this week. And like something we say every time we take our first drink, we say to the king. And to really mean that and really feel that. I remember what it feels like, began to feel like, as I began to make transition down this road of purity in my life. and, And I began to find the things that I was interested in. That sexual obsession had obscured in my heart. Things that I couldn't care less about. Books that I can't wait to read. Literature that I couldn't wait to absorb. The beauty of our world. I know that may not be your story. You may not be a bookworm or um, uh, somebody that's interested in those types of things. But every single one of you have hearts that God sees that could be whole and beautiful. And if you could see the passions that God has for you outside of binging on Netflix every night, which is dangerous because many of us were so desensitized to the sewage that is on television. And please, I am not an anti-TV guy. But so many of us are so desensitized by the sewage that's on television, we don't even realize it now that we've got categories for darkness in our lives because it's just what's on every show now. There's so much more to say. So I'm going to come back next week and finish this. I know I'm not giving you much of a resolve this morning, but I'm learning not to care about that (laughs) because I preach and teach in stories and I want you to come back and be a part of the story next week. This week, I think it'd be really helpful if you just shoot on this. Look at yourself. Find your story. What is it? If you don't know the source of your pain, I doubt you are ever going to overcome the gripping insecurity in your life. 
You're going to continue to throw atomic bombs at your relationships out of your insecurity and your brokenness if you don't figure out what made that, what gave you that impulse. You're going to continue to be socially isolated from your brothers and sisters in the church if you don't figure out why you are afraid to be known and to be with people. You've got to figure that out, man. You've got to figure that out. It's not easy. I wish I could have a prayer line and just like pray over every person here and that makes it all go away. But that doesn't work. That will not work. I'm calling you all to join me on the broken path of vulnerability. To look at your hearts, embrace humility, be known, and have the courage to face your past. Go there. I know for some of you that's really, really frightening. I don't say that with a lack of empathy. I'm not not oversimplifying this. Maybe you need some guidance on this. We're here for you. We're here for you. But you got to go there. You got to figure out where you were hurt the most because that's what has probably led to the sin and the darkness that is gripping your life and strangling you. It's strangling your marriage. It's strangling your relationship with your children. It's strangling you at work. Every, aren't you tired of driving to work and praying the same prayer every day? Lord, they're going to gossip like crazy. They're going to speak perversely all day long. Jesus, help me not to do that. And you've committed to God that you're going to live a life that honors him. And not five minutes after you get there, you are just swept up in the sewage. Why do you do that? Underneath that sin, I don't know why I put uh, quotes on that. Underneath that sin is something very broken in your life. A need to please people a desperate need to be loved and accepted, you've got to find that story in your life. Jesus, oh man, this is one of those days that I'm feeling really inadequate. I'm feeling like I give, I give a third of a sermon. But I do believe that you are with us today and you are speaking today. And I pray that you would help us all to face what's broken inside of ourselves. Because there's one thing that I've found in my life when I go back to the most painful season of my life. Not only did those sixth and seventh grade years give me profound pain, those sixth and seventh grade years gave me a passion for community. And I lead out of that passion today, Lord. And so I see Jesus walking with me quietly through those two years when I felt most alone. And Jesus, I know you are also there in the points and moments of our deepest pain. You are there. And I pray, Jesus, that as we serve you and surrender to you, that we would trust you You are good. In Jesus' name. Amen.